Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 236, Turkey Science versus Turkey Fiction, with Mike Chamberlain. And I am your host, and the guy who is now working on his honeydew list. The reason that I'm doing that now is because we are 318 days, 12 hours, 15 minutes, and 50 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. So my wife and I spent a good bit of time in the yard this weekend, cleaning up a little bit, planting some plants, and I don't know, we're probably a third of the way through doing what we need to do. So that is about what my next two weekends look like, yard work. But hopefully it'll look good afterwards and I'll get the pool opened and be able to get in the pool and cool off with a nice little dip. All right, I'm going to be quick again today because I have an incredible interview for you guys that I really think you're going to enjoy. And before I get into that interview, I'm excited to tell you guys that we have a winner of the Strut Commander Box Call Giveaway. Winner, winner, turkey dinner. After I gave you guys a hint last week, the guesses came pouring in. The most common guesses were there were three hunters with guns pointed all in the same direction, not having a talk with our new turkey hunter before getting into the woods, not being aggressive enough to get John, our designated shooter, to move as soon as the turkey gobbled when he was on the ground. Now on that one, please realize that you are correct, but our designated shooter was to my left and the turkey was to my right. So I was between the shooter and the turkey. No, nobody's going to shoot in that situation. There is no reason to move in that situation. And besides, I thought that Joey would have an opportunity to move and get a shot at that turkey, the direction the turkey came in. But Joey couldn't see him when the gobbler was very close to us. Again, those are all good answers, but not the one that I was looking for until I got Steve Hughes's guess. Steve guessed that my screw up was when I purred on my slate after seeing the gobbler and that caused me to get busted. Hey, it was a lesson relearned for me. I knew better. I know better. I was just kind of caught up in the moment hoping that I could 
get that turkey to stop for just a second to hang in there with us for a few seconds longer in hopes that Joey could get a shot at him. Or that he may circle a little bit more in front of us and John would get a shot at him. It just didn't work out that way. So the takeaway from that hunt is that we should never call to a turkey that we can see and that is in range when we do not have any decoys out. That gobbler knew as soon as I called that he had screwed up and he wisely retreated in the same direction that he came from. So Steve guessed it first and is our big winner of the Strut Commander Tempest box call. So Steve, shoot me an email to andy at iamturkeyhunting.com with your mailing address and I'll get that call out to you. Okay, thank you to all of you who entered the contest. I thought that was a lot of fun and I hope that you guys enjoyed picking apart that awesome turkey hunt. All right, now let's move on. This week, I'm very excited to bring you guys this interview with Mike Chamberlain, who is a professor in wildlife and and ecology management and a wildlife biologist at the University of Georgia. Mike and I are tackling some of the propaganda that floats around on social media about wild turkey management and wild turkey habitat management as well. This interview is a long one because I couldn't stop asking Mike questions. I had follow-up question after follow-up question for Mike, and he was kind enough to keep answering them. And I was thoroughly enjoying every minute of our talk. I know you will too. Here's Mike Chamberlain, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am glad to tell you that I have on the phone with me today Mike Chamberlain, who is a wildlife biologist and a professor at the University of Georgia. And I got turned on to Mike about a week or so ago from the Wild Turkey Report Twitter account. And they just happened to retweet something that Mike had posted on Facebook, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I got to looking at that post and said, hey, there's an opportunity for a long conversation here, probably longer than Mike wants to have with me about some of the information in his post. And so I tracked him down and tricked Mike into coming on the show. Mike, how are you and where are you this morning? I'm doing well, Andy. I'm sitting here in Georgia recovering from a a day of field work yesterday that was pretty hot and pretty buggy. Oh yeah, I bet. So tell us a little bit about yourself and I understand you and I've now had, I don't know, 20 minutes of conversation, but I understand from talking to you and from looking at your social media accounts that you're a pretty avid hunter. So tell us a little bit about how you got into turkey hunting as well. Yeah, so I grew up like like a lot of folks, just suburban kid. I had a dad that, that hunted on the weekends, worked really hard. So Saturday was our, that was our day to get out in the in the woods and chase whatever was in season or fish or whatever we could do to to be outside and spend time together and mm-hmm. from there i ended up I, you know, I basically hunted anything that i could that i could hunt and i ended up going to virginia tech to get an undergraduate degree in wildlife science and once i did i ended up in graduate school studying turkeys i, I really didn't i wasn't driven to study turkeys per se i I really just wanted to study any species that I could that I could because I was interested in pretty much everything at that time and 
once I got into graduate school and started studying this bird, I became fascinated with, with what they do, how they behave. And then I guess the natural conduit from there is to end up being a turkey hunter. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't actually hunt turkeys as a youngster. I did a little, you know, growing up in, in central Virginia, we had a, we had a fall turkey season and a, and a spring season. And I kind of dabbled in everything. Honestly, I, I deer hunted a lot. I, hunted small game, I hunted waterfowl, I hunted turkeys. I, I I would say I was a turkey hunter by trade at that time. I really just, I hunted anything that was in season just to, to get outside and, you know, not be stuck in the house. And I guess through time, you know, I've, I've, as you noted, I'm an active hunter. I, I my wife actually would I'd probably classify it as being fanatical. Uh, I'll hunt anything. I'll hunt anything that, that I can. I love the thrill of the chase. Yeah. So you got your undergrad at Virginia Tech, and then was it Mississippi State from there for grad? That's right. That's right. That's right. I went to Mississippi State and and did my master's degree working on turkeys, and then was offered an opportunity to stay and continue studying turkeys as well as predators that eat them as part of my PhD. So my my dissertation work was looking at turkeys and predation of of turkeys by, I studied bobcats, coyotes, foxes, raccoons, anything that would eat a nest or an adult was, that was kind of the focus of my work. And then from there, I I went to LSU and worked as a faculty member there for a little more than a decade, doing pretty much the same thing I do here at the University of Georgia, where I've been for the last eight years. Okay. Now, your graduate studies were in predation. What and I know you're in that professor level now, so you probably aren't just studying one particular aspect about wild turkeys. You're being involved in several different research projects that a lot of your graduate mm-hmm. students are doing. But what what are some of the studies that you've done over the past several years involving turkeys? Most of my work the past five, six, seven years has either focused on one of three things, the the most being probably just reproductive ecology, you know, nesting, nest success, brood survival, mm-hmm. those types of things. Second would be uh, gobbling activity and looking at the chronology of gobbling, when it starts, when it stops, it, when it peaks, if it even does, how it's influenced by hunting activity, is, is gobbling occurring when the state's think it should be occurring relative to their their hunting season frameworks that would be the second and then the third would would certainly be prescribed fire and how fire is influencing turkey movements turkey nesting brooding etc yeah okay i hope you have about eight or nine hours to stay on the phone with me today because i have a lot of questions (laughs) for you (laughs) well i do not (laughs) Uh, i don't think i could really talk that much so I, I think you're safe but i have that many questions to ask you but i just don't think i could physically talk that much so i think you'll be all right so well instead of going that route we can just do multiple podcasts rather <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah i like that yeah. idea too yeah that way we get a little bit of a break and you know maybe take a nap here and there somewhere along the line sure so, yeah sure Maybe squeeze in a turkey hunt as well, so that would be yeah, good. That would be that would be good. The season's winding down. Yes, it is. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you're pretty active on social media, and I know you can't help but see some of the posts from what I'm going to call the weekend warrior biologists that are on Facebook and Twitter, and those are the the posts that are put on there by 
oh, let's just say the owner of a local mortgage company in Birmingham that absolutely, without a doubt, exclamation on the exclamation point on the end of the statement knows exactly why our turkey populations in a lot of states are declining and why the hunting is not as good. And Mm -hmm. I just want to maybe address a few of the arguments that some of these weekend warrior biologists make on social media. And the first one that seems to be, uh, I hate to even use the word (laughs) hot, but it seems to be a big topic for many people and many of these weekend warrior biologists is growing season burns. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. can you, because you have studied them a great deal, can you burning period, can you tell me a little bit about growing season burns, what they are and why they're beneficial as well as why they are controversial? And then I've got a follow-up question to that as well. Sure. Sure. So uh, by definition, a growing season fire is simply a, a fire that's applied to a stand at a time after green up with the purpose in mind being that the fire will behave differently than it would have behaved if it had been applied in the dormant season, say December, January, February. And by behave, I mean, it, it, they tend to be a little hotter in the growing season because air temperatures are higher mm-hmm. you once woody plants have have started to green up if you burn them you tend to get better control of woody plants and you tend to stimulate plants that are more grassy forbs and the reason that managers do that is because they are trying to create and maintain habitats that are like that that are not dominated by sweet gum and other woody plants that tend to benefit from a dormant season fire. So if you drive around our landscape and you look, many agencies burn during the winter, and they do that routinely. What you produce is a a habitat that's dominated by three or four woody plants, uh, yopon, sweet gum, depending on where you are, there's a predictable group of plants that benefit from that type of fire. And And that's not turkey habitat, as well as habitat for a variety of other species. So you see the application of growing season fire in situations where managers want to push, if you will, the habitat towards grassy, low-growing forbs, etc., because of the the species that are adapted to living in those types of stands. The the controversy, while it's it's there's a lot to discuss as far as the controversy goes, and, and I get it. You you have this notion, which was partially why I posted that, that one particular post that prompted you to contact me. On the surface, you, you look at a stand that's been burned in, let's say, April, and you're, you're left almost aghast that why did they do this? Why did they burn this stand while quail and turkeys and, and these other species are nesting? Surely they destroyed all the nests that were in this stand, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that this is bad and then perpetuate that. And, and, and in reality, it, it's not, with the caveat that, which I noted in that post, that like every other tool we have, fire can be used inappropriately. Right. And growing season fire is certainly something that could be used inappropriately. But the point is that if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding, 
that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. Okay. So you had mentioned to me in our previous conversation that dormant season fire, when it kind of brings about that woody regrowth from after the fire, that that actually is more conducive to predators than it is to wild turkeys. That, that's right. And and what we found is, and if, if you, I, I try to tell people, if you ever want to look at habitat or landscape as a turkey sees it, just squat down on your knees. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can see over what's around you, then a turkey has a fighting chance. And if you can't, if your vision is obstructed, then so is theirs. And they make a living by being able to see first and foremost. That's how, that's how turkeys evade predators is sight. So if you burn stands routinely with, with dormant season fires, so let's say every three years you burn this stand and you do it in December or January, I will promise you what you're going to end up with through time is mostly woody plant. And what we found is that if turkeys have to, they'll use that. If that's what they have available to them, that's what they use. Mm-hmm. But you also tend to see greater use of those stands by raccoons. And one of the one of the reasons is that type of fire also tends to stimulate plants like blackberry that produce a soft mass that's high, you know, it's quality raccoon forage there. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see that that fires in the winter end up producing habitat that actually becomes better for predators than it does for the bird. And that, it, to me, it, it goes to not just the vision that they lack in these stands that are mostly woody, but it also goes to the forage that's produced for species that, that eat turkeys or their eggs. Okay. So these growing season burns oftentimes appear that they're destroying nests, but in fact, the post that you put on Facebook, you had mentioned in the post that the picture of the nest that was burned, of the eggs in that nest that were burned, you mentioned that that nest actually hatched. That's correct. Yep. Is there kind of a, has the research been done to give us kind of a number of how many nests are actually destroyed by a particular fire? And I know every fire is different because the temperature intensity and so on and so forth. But in the studies that have been done with this, is are there any results from that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We Much of my work the past six, seven years has been on public lands managed primarily with prescribed fire. And what we see on those properties is that when, when the agency is using a routine fire return interval, meaning every three years, for instance, they mm-hmm. burn this stand again, that, that in reality nest loss to fire is in the single digits percent. Wow. Very, very few nests are lost. Now, of course, anyone, and I'm not naive enough to think that on all properties, that's the case. You, right. you could have a, a large scale four or 5,000 acre fire occur in April, and you would certainly expect to lose more nests than if you had a 200 acre fire. I mean, we all understand that. And that goes back to the notion that fire could absolutely be used inappropriately. There's no question. Mm-hmm. So what I'm speaking here is in generalities. But what what our data have shown on the studies, on the properties that we've worked on, which include, again, all public lands, that nest loss to fire is, is slight. 
and two other things play into kind of that statement. One was like the nest in that post. That nest actually ended up hatching. Now, some of the eggs didn't hatch, obviously, if you look sure. at the, the picture, one of the one of the eggs was singed. But the point was of that post partially, I think I had a lot of points to that particular post, but one was you know, everything's not black and white. And in reality, that bird came back to that nest. She incubated the, the clutch and she hatched most of those eggs. And we've seen that a number of times that either the fire doesn't consume the nest or she ends up nesting in what's called a fire shadow. And, and all of us have seen this and, and maybe didn't realize that was what we were seeing, but a spot or a, a drainage or something in a stand that was burned that did not burn. So the fire actually mm. crept around the spot. Right. And she just returns to the site and continues incubating. And you would think, well, that's horrible. But if you think about it, what ha- what most predators do, raccoons, bobcats, coyotes, etc., is after a fire event, they don't use the stand. Mm-hmm. Well, if she returns to the stand and she continues her business as usual, which is what we found happens in many, many cases, that's not a bad thing. The, the other the other way to view that is most birds renest. And and I've if you look through <laughs> if you look through the comments on a lot of my posts, you'll see that no, they don't. I know that they don't renest, et cetera, and that's completely and patently false. Yeah, we 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 find that renesting occurs on every property. We find that renesting can be quite high in some populations, well over fifty percent, mm-hmm. meaning that more than half of the birds that lose their first clutch try again. Some try three times, some try even four times, and some of those nests hatch. So this notion that well, if we burn this nest up which would, again, would be unfortunate, but is not a common occurrence across the landscape, you, you're going, in many cases, going to have a bird that ends up giving it another shot. Um, now, some will argue, and this is partially true, in some populations that renesting is not generally as successful. And what, what they mean by that is the second clutches are usually smaller, and, and they are. They, mm-hmm. they tend to be one egg, you know, maybe two eggs smaller than the initial clutch. Okay. But the point is that this bird is, turkeys are prolific. And if you think about millennia ago, when this bird was living in the Southeast, they were linked to fire. This, this landscape that we live on, and I'm looking out my window in, in Northeast Georgia, and the pine forest in this part of the world were burned historically. And this bird lives here. So they're, they're inextricably linked to fire disturbances. They've dealt with it for many, many, many years, decades. Right. So they know how to react in the presence of this disturbance. So that's why I kind of encourage people to kind of take a step back and think about it from the bigger picture. You know, how would this bird behave in the presence of this this disturbance? Yeah, this is something you mentioned just a minute ago. But in our earlier conversation as well, we talked about how or some of the ways that fire can be used improperly. And. Mm-hmm. We talked about these larger scale burns where there was, you know, 1,500, 2,000 acres, 4,000 acres being burned. What research, if any, has been done to show whether or not these larger scale burns are better or worse for turkeys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the scale issue, you know, so we've kind of covered the timing, mm-hmm. you know, growing versus dormant season. The scale issue is where it gets where it gets really tricky. And I do. The short answer is yes. We we have not published this work yet. In fact, 
the the student that's working with me on this particular project is finishing up his his dissertation work right now. In fact, he will this summer we will have this work out for those that are interested to see it. But yeah. but what we're seeing is that that scale does matter, and not only does scale matter, shape matters. And what I mean by shape is, you know, we can't predict every every fire on the landscape is different, and we and we can't we have to kind of simplify in our minds how the shape of a fire would matter so in other words you know a, a stand that is big but is narrow is different than a stand that's big and square mm-hmm. those types of things but that matters and and what we're seeing is that both scale and shape matters to to turkeys the bigger the fire the more likely you're going to create habitat in the center of the stand that turkeys don't use and they don't use it for several if not up to many weeks after the fire Mm -hmm. and that makes sense because they need escape cover so if you burn a a huge block of forest they perceive the center of that to be non-habitat i'm not going in there because there's nowhere to escape if, if something chases me right so yes scale matters now I can't tell you at this point what is too big, but sure. I will tell you that what our data suggests is that the smaller, the better. So when you when you graph out what's the probability that a turkey is going to use this stand after it's burned, you see that it's quite high. If you're talking fires that are 50, 100, 200, 300 acres-ish, and then once you start getting in the four or 500 acre range, you start seeing this slow decline in our predicted use by turkeys in other words are are they going to do do it or not are they going to use the stand or not it starts creeping down and then once you get in the seven eight nine hundred acre range it's there's a precipitous drop and then once you get out you know several thousand acres it's almost zero Mm -hmm. now granted if a turkey's living on a landscape and that's all they have available to them and you burn the whole thing they're going to do their best and try to use what they can. That's, I mean, but that's not the scenario that we would obviously want. So I think what the outcome of our work is going to be is that in many situations, some fires that are applied are too big. And then it will be up to agencies to either change or not. Um, and and I, this is such a complex situation because, as you noted, every fire is different. And, and we as human beings, we unfortunately, we, ha- we have to generalize things. We have to say, okay, well, you're not going to burn bigger than this or you're not going to burn bigger than that or whatever. And then we apply that broadly. That's what we do as, as humans. Mm-hmm. And, and that may not be the best scenario, but I think we're going to have to take a step back and realize that fire in and of itself is not bad. And fire in and of itself is not the reason that this bird is declining across the southeast. It's that simple. But could we use this tool better? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question that there are better fire prescriptions in some situations that are being used. Could they be smaller? Very likely. Could they be timed at a different time? Maybe. It's going to now be our jobs as as hunters and managers and scientists to work with agencies, if if that's the case, to, to tweak how we apply fire to the landscape. And and some agencies may not, I mean, some landowners may not be interested in changing the way that they use prescribed fire. 
but I would like to hope that the science will guide our decisions to, to manage the landscape moving forward. Yeah. So maybe once this research has been published, we can go in, read a little bit more about that, and then start. Instead of just getting on social media and posting random thoughts, we'll have some science that we can, in fact, go to the people that make the decisions about these burns and maybe make an argument to do things a little bit differently than some of them are doing. Absolutely. And, and you know, I don't I don't fault people, per se, for, for making thoughts known on social media. I mean, I, I, I have that luxury. I, I do that, and, and everyone is entitled to their opinion. And, and you know, turkey turkey hunters, I've said this many times in many forums, Turkey hunters are a really cerebral group by and large. They, mm-hmm. they, they use their heads. They think they are passionate about this bird. Not saying that other, you know, folks that hunt other species are not, but man, turkey hunters are, are different to me. And, and I get, I get it. I understand the concern. I understand the frustration. You know, I, I cherish this bird. I've spent my life working with this bird mm-hmm. and it frustrates me to see you know that populations are not doing well in some areas and and as i travel around and i talk with people i i I get the tangible sense from almost everyone i talk to that they share that frustration and their concern just like i am and we all want the same end result we just have different perspectives and different thoughts on how to get there and it you know in this day and age it's easy for people to get on facebook or whatever it is and 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 post information and that that's fine again they have that the right to do that but i would like to hope as we do with with other in other situations for instance if you think about a medical doctor would you go to your doctor and ask for their opinion on something that's bothering you and then completely dismiss their opinion and go do something different well perhaps but i wouldn't think that would be a wise decision and i I use that analogy because that's what I see people doing in many, many situations when we're talking about wildlife in general, uh, and specific to this conversation about turkeys and fire, is they they almost summarily dismiss information that's that's available. Talking about well, how do turkeys respond to fire, or how do bobwhites respond to fire, and that that's troubling to me. Yeah, yeah. All right, one more. Th- question for you about fire and then we're going to move on to something else that's I think a concern and a hot button for all of us and that's predation but what during the the studies that where you've looked at these growing season burns we talked about the nesting part of it but what how much of an effect does it have on the poults are we losing poults to these fires yeah so the short answer is no we of all the of all the fires that we've had birds use we've had one instance of a of a brood that was lost and the reason for that is really quite simple these hens take broods to stands that are not scheduled to be burned they these stands that are scheduled to be burned are thick brushy dense nasty if you will right and these broods are going to open park-like, grassy, you know, sparse understory, lots of visibility. So if you're if you're looking at a landscape that's burned, these broods are actually going to stands that were burned last year mm-hmm. or two years before, mm-hmm. not not scheduled to be burned this year. So that's why we see very little brood loss 
because they're not even using stands that are ready to be burned. Very interesting. It makes a lot of sense because nesting habitat and brood habitat are not necessarily the same. So, In fact, yeah, they are quite different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you these birds, the, the only time a hen is going to use habitat that looks like nesting cover when she has a brood is if she's trying to get them out of it. <laughs> I mean, they, uh, they don't want to be there. They, and that's why you, you always see that when they hatch, they skedaddle. They, they get those poults and they get them out of that spot because nesting cover is not brood cover. Nesting cover is I need to squat down and hide or I need to sit here where I can see. And that's basically what we, that's what we see with, with turkey nest. There's two types of nests. There's nests that are kind of in the open that, and we've all seen this as hunters, you bump into a nest or find a nest. There's a nest that's kind of open where she can sit there and see around her, mm-hmm. presumably because she thinks, you know what, if something comes after me, I can get away from it. Or there's the nest that's in just the dense jungle and presumably we're thinking, well, she's trying to hide. Either way, She's going to move that brood away from that nest after she hatches and get them somewhere that doesn't look like nesting habitat. Yeah, okay. That's good to know, and that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about predation. And I want to talk, I guess, on both nest predation and adult predation and poultry mm-hmm. predation as well. So in the studies that you've been involved in or studies that you've read, has there been really any kind of determination made if nest predation is a more common occurrence than poult and or adult hen, or not even hen, but adult predation? All right, that is all that I have for you guys for the free portion of this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. If you would like to hear the rest of the interview with Mike and learn a few more things about wild turkeys and their habitat, then you will need to become a subscriber to the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast. And in order to become a subscriber to the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast, what you need to do is text the word Turkey Hunter. Make that one word, Turkey Hunter. Text that to the number 44222. Once you do that, all you're going to need to do is follow instructions from there. And eventually I'm going to email you a link that you can click on where you can create your username and password for the Podbean application and pay the $18 per year annual subscription fee. Your $18 annual subscription will get you not only the rest of this week's interview with Mike, but it will also get you the premium content for all of our past episodes, as well as the premium content for the next 52 weeks. So there is a bunch of content out there that's locked up that I know you can learn from. Heck, there's a bunch of content locked up just in this week's interview alone that I know you can learn from. So I'm telling you all that to say that 18 bucks is a cheap, cheap price to pay for the amount of information you're going to get. I hope that you enjoyed that interview at least half as much as I did. If you did and you want more, then I encourage you to follow Mike on social media to learn more from him throughout the months to come. Man, there was just so much good info in that call. That's got to be one of my favorites now. Hey, if you enjoyed the interview with Mike and learned just one thing that you did not know before today, then do me a huge favor and share this episode on social media for me. Just share the post on Facebook, 
which you can get from the I Am Turkey Hunting Facebook page, and retweet this tweet on Twitter as well. If you need a reminder there, my Twitter handle is at turkeyhitman, H-I-T-M-A-N, hitman. If you do that for me, that'd be a huge help for me and for the show as well. Okay, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.